From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the weekly internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Carl Franklin introducing show number four with guest Simon Goldstein, recorded April 20th, 2007. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, offering professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. Hey, this is Richard Campbell, and you're listening to Run As Radio. And with me always is Greg Hughes. Hello, everybody. Hello, Richard. Well, you ready to go again? I think I am. It seems like we've got the show worked out now. The uh, the website's up. The email's finally working. Info at runasradio.com is working. And I got us an email. Yep, they've started to flow in. There you go. So this is from Alan Osborne's, and it says, Hi, Richard and Greg. Congratulations on the launch of Run As Radio. I checked out your first show with Patrick Hines on storage management and enjoyed the discussion as it's right up my alley. I've set up and deployed SAN infrastructures for clients, and I'm looking to get into an entry-level iSCSI SAN using 500-gigabyte SATA drives for my own VMware-based hosting service. Amazing that you can get up to 7 terabytes in a 2U space for about $30,000. Your inaugural show raised some interesting questions about storage management and the present and future challenges that an exponentially growing amount of data presents in terms of management and disaster recovery. In particular, the examination of how user data can balloon when the lack of policies and quotas exists on a per-user basis was instructive, as was the discussion on strategies for locking things down. As a VMware guy, I would have liked to have heard a discussion about the parallels between server virtualization and the virtualization of storage, where at the server level, the OS and software is divorced from the hardware details. For example, you can carve out a LUN and an abstract that LUN as a local disk to the server, regardless of whether you employ iSCSI or Fiber Channel on the back end. In a similar fashion, by employing virtual machines, you divorce the OS and software from the underlying hardware, and by doing so, provide standardization and, more importantly, portability. In effect, you make it possible to run that virtual machine as an application on almost any host server hardware with no driver issues, etc. In fact, the really interesting space is where the two technologies merge. For instance, a fully redundant SAN, likely with RAID, which you can carve up and abstract as LUNs to a farm of host ESX servers, perhaps physically implemented as a blade center, and virtual machines, could be hundreds, see DAS, the local disks, as SCSI virtual drives, that are in actuality encapsulated as a bunch of files on the SAN. The beauty of this is that the ability to take real-time snapshots of the virtual server states and the SAN states as a backup and disaster recovery methodology in addition to traditional file-based backup. With virtual machines, given the fact that they are encapsulated as a few files, you replicate these files stored on the SAN to another LUN, then replicate the snapshot to a remote site via WAN links with no downtime and no performance hit. Then, in the case of a disaster, you can restore the virtual disks for the virtual machines at the remote site, make some changes to your routing tables, and bring virtual machines back up on completely different host hardware as if nothing ever happened. For file and database restores, you mount the previous snapshot as a virtual disk and restore the files. I love this sort of topic and looking forward with anticipation to your future shows. Cheers, Alan Osborne. Wow. Long email. That's, uh, you know, you get you get uh, 
San and Naz type guys around, or, you know, the other ones are the firewall ones. <laughs> and they get started talking and the words just flow. And you know what, what's really interesting about that email is, um, you know, where I work, our IT department has really relied heavily on two uh, time and cost-saving technologies. One of them is server virtualization, and right. the other one is SAN and NAS, and has done a lot of work in terms of where you know where do those two meet, and how do you really work that? It's really very interesting to hear a lot of common threads between what uh, our IT department has done here as and and what's being talked about in that email. Well, and hugely powerful thinking around upgrading or failing over to asymmetrical gear. You know, that, I just, that has so much potential. I could actually upgrade the site this way by taking snapshots, move it to the, to these bigger systems. And I don't care about the changes that I get a whole totally new drive array isolated from everything else, but running in that virtual mode so that I don't have to deal with performance issues around it. That's right. And the, and just the uh, not dealing with downtime, you know, the concept of as little or as little downtime as possible or no downtime, the LUN or the logical unit and being able to basically point a, you know, your card that is sitting inside of your server, if you will, which virtually points at the SAN disk array that you tell it to and will simply leverage that. And the idea of doing what he referred to as syncs and splits. So I can synchronize two disk arrays with each other. I can split one off and then I can perform an upgrade over there or do whatever data management or backup and then join it back up to the one that remained live and allow it to catch up, if you will. And it's, uh, the, the benefits of that, whether it's from a business continuity and disaster recovery, a high availability standpoint, flexibility in terms of managing downtime. Uh, there's a wide variety of benefits to going with that type of infrastructure, especially in an environment where things have to remain up 24-7. And it's just happening more and more and more. Uh, I think we're getting closer to this you know, theoretical world of the computing cloud, where I just buy performance as I need it and can move my app anywhere I want to go. That, absolutely. That was a great email. Thanks a lot, Alan. All right, Greg, let's get to our guest. Simon Goldstein is Carillion's Director of Security Operations and a CISA. He has over 20 years of IT management and compliance experience. As principal of his own consulting company, Simon led business transformations for multinational manufacturers and is an expert in regulatory compliance assessments. He served as a senior e-business architect for Sterling Commerce, and was instrumental in establishing their HIPAA compliance consulting service. Simon is a frequent speaker at universities and industry conferences on business infrastructure, governance, and security. Simon worked in the financial services industry for over 20 years in a variety of technology management and planning positions with Citibank. He has also held senior IT management positions with Prepress Solutions and at Norm Thompson Outfitters. Welcome, Simon. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate being here today. Simon, that's quite the uh, list of uh, past experience there. Well, you know, if you live long enough and you keep moving, you wind up in a lot of different companies. Uh, it took me 20 years to figure out you don't have to stay put with one company for your whole career, and I finally figured that out. And so the rest has all happened in the last uh, 30 seconds. And yeah, that's great, Richard. Uh, Simon's a good friend of mine, so I can uh, I can say honestly that he's older than I am. I can actually say that if if you presume I'm reasonably precocious, I could qualify as be old enough to be his father. <laughs> 
I, I have the benefit and the opportunity and really the honor of working with Simon for the last couple of years. And uh, the reason I asked Simon to join us is because his background and his expertise and really just his general point of view um, has proven to be really valuable in terms of uh, you know the job that I have to do in a compliance and a regulatory standpoint. Uh, security standards and whatnot. And, uh, I thought it would be great to maybe have him share some of his thoughts and ideas, uh, you know, with our uh, listening audience. Yeah. We talked about, uh, getting into compliance issues. I know that's a major issue for a lot of folks and there's all kinds of different kinds of compliance. I mean, Sarbanes-Oxley, I think is causing grief for all sorts of people and HIPAA, which, you know, Simon mentioned quite specifically, uh, uh the big healthcare related one. But I think you've also been involved in ISO as well. Simon? I have. ISO, HIPAA, Sarbanes-Oxley. Actually, the progression was HIPAA, Sarbanes-Oxley, ISO, specifically in my own experience. But I have to tell you, there is a tremendous amount of, of overlap across all of these compliance and regulatory standards. You could add Graham Leach Bliley into there and some of the, you know, Regulation G and Regulation E and the like. All of them, you know, are surrounding uh, basic attempts to secure information protect privacy, ensure that people have access to information when they need to and don't have access to it when they have no business reason to do so. It really is a, a, a lot of regulation and a lot of legislation surrounding practices that one would hope and expect businesses would embrace and adopt simply because it's the right way to do things. The truth of the matter is it always isn't the least expensive way to do it, and very often that gets in conflict with uh, businesses that are trying to grow very quickly, have limited resources, or are just not mindful of the regulations or the business benefits of being really safe and secure. You know, uh, a lot of people, if you walk up to them and you say governance or compliance or security, their their immediate uh, vision is some corporate equivalent of the Death Star rising over the uh, the horizon and looming to uh, to lay waste to all their business plans and dreams for the future. It's a kind of punishment for actually being successful. Yeah, if if you do your job really well, you work hard. Security will come and damage you. And <laughs> security should be thought of more as a shield. And to some extent, there's an opportunity to strategically differentiate yourself in a marketplace. It's particularly true in financial services and healthcare, largely because there's more regulations, there's more oversight, but there's also more opportunity to have personal information, information you wouldn't necessarily staple uh, to a, a billboard or a tree or to skywrite for everybody to read. You don't want your medical records all over the place. You don't want your finances. You don't want your pay statement disclosed as public information. And so industries that deal with those things have, have come to have more oversight. But the truth of the matter is that the companies that do work with them are, are much better companies and do a much better job for their customers and represent more value to them when they embrace security practices and the governance that, that enables and supports and monitors them as they're uh, as they're going about the course of doing their business. And so what does that mean in the real world? You know, I I mean the people that are that are listening to us right now are are, you know, a lot of them are IT professionals. They they run exchange servers, they manage IT departments, they work on the help desk, they they administer servers and machines, uh desktop machines and whatnot. What what does security and compliance and ISO standards and whatnot mean for the people who are Feet on the ground, and for those that are uh, that are managing the day-to-day -day operations of of say an IT department. 
let me let me give you a simple model that I've been using for years. That's kind of a, a four component cyclical model. And then within that, we can talk to the specifics of all those because they're all great points and, and it's worth doing some examples in specific. Almost any organization of, of enough size to have their own exchange server, uh, as an example, probably has a body of policies. They may be security policies. They may be IT policies. They go by a number of names. But they, they talk about uh, how information ought to be treated and handled. If you have policies that describe what the right practices are, and you have procedures that describe how to do your work to embrace and to fulfill the promise of those policies. If you have evidence that you're in fact following those policies, and if you can demonstrate how you remediate nonconformities or violations of those policies, against almost any set of regulations, against almost any governance requirements, and frankly, against any legal threat from the outside or challenge, you could arguably be in a defensible position if you have policies, procedures, evidence, and remediation, those four things. So from a practical standpoint, you're looking at at people on a help desk. Well, they know that they're not supposed to just give passwords out um, over the phone without perhaps challenging some uh, additional information or providing some uh, questions to get answers that are challenges to authenticate the person calling is really the person who forgot their password and needs a new temporary one. Uh, if they follow that, they have a policy about you know protecting the information like that. They have a procedure on how they do so and authenticate the user. They follow that procedure. Uh, if if there's a help ticket or anything opened for that kind of a call, they have evidence of it, and they're fine. And when they have instances or calls or complaints where that was done without it, they're not. And then you hopefully have some kind of a management review process of tickets and or uh, incoming calls or complaints to remediate where people are not following rules or procedures. It's a very oversimplified example, but it's it's representative. In the, in the Sarbanes-Oxley world, we're talking about something that the term we hear quite often in a lot of these regulatory environments is controls. Controls are nothing more than, than steps in a process that tell you, how do you know that the right thing is being done and that the steps that preceded were in fact followed? So, for example, let's look at a change control process. You may have a half a dozen steps that say the change control is received it's reviewed preliminary by one by uh, someone with a technical expertise. It's passed on for other people to be uh, sized and or scheduled. But at some point, it passes to uh, an approval phase where someone in authority looks at this and applies not only some technical expertise, but some business expertise. Is this a valid control? Uh, has it been looked at from uh, both a, a technical and perhaps a risk standpoint? Uh, you know, are there are there backout procedures if we make this change and it does not work? Has it been tested? Someone with the visibility and and scope for this for this particular instance to approve and say yes, we ought to proceed and execute this. That's a control point. Controls are not dials, they're not gauges. They are usually either approvals or signatures or. Um, reliance uh, or referral to someone not who does not have a vested necessarily interest in the uh, in the step getting done 
who will look at it from an oversight perspective and say, yeah, that's an appropriate thing to do. You, all, all the steps have been followed. It's a checkpoint. Uh, we're, we're ready to proceed. I like the language you're using because you really haven't focused in on any particular uh, set of compliance rules. I mean, obviously, controls was a term that Greg pulled from Sarbanes-Oxley, but controls is generic as well as, a, as an element of these uh, four basic characteristics of compliance in general. When I first started doing compliance uh, compliance review work, and the work that I did was was really looking at companies and helping them understand how far away their practices and documentation and behaviors were from being in in a uh, in a place where they could say with some certainty, if an outside third party looks at what we do, they will agree that we are following the regulation, right. whether it be HIPAA or whatever. I struggled with controls because I kept looking for dials and gauges and other stuff like that, um, and and I. You know, grew up uh, from a business standpoint, years and years at Citibank, they used to talk about doing transactions in control. And what that really wound up meaning was that you you knew what was really going on and that the, uh, some oversight uh, was attending to the quality of the work, that it was complete, that it was accurate, that it made sense. I think there's a very powerful point you made in there, which is that it's something that a third party can see complies or that that measures up to the standard these we always forget as we're inside of these companies how much intrinsic knowledge we have about procedures that third parties aren't going to know about there there is there is a risk when you're really knowledgeable about what you do and that risk is that you become complacent about all that you know and start to think that others will, of course, know all these things because they're so obvious. Right. And when you then have to involve new people in the process, if you've had you know, recent additions to staff or acquisitions, or you involve another partner or another player in a process, or uh, it, it, it's a new handoff or something like that, very often there's an opportunity and, frankly, an inclination to leave something out to that, of course, the other person would take care of because they would know that you can't do a without having also done B and C. Well, the other party may be coming from a different perspective, may be very rote in their manner, or may simply not know all of those things. And if someone else isn't watching who who does know and who was not part of the initial change or the initial first steps that began the process, it, it can be a problem. Think of it this way. Let's keep it really simple. Um, if you write a piece for publication or you write a piece for school, don't you usually try and find somebody else to do the proofreading? It's not because you don't know how to write. It's not because you don't know how to spell. It's because you're going to read things the way you intended them to be. You're not going to catch your own errors. The person who does not have that history, that knowledge of intent, looks at just what's been represented. And that's why the third-party editing service, if you will, or proofreading service is so valuable. You know, you take your analogy, and I step back a little bit, because one of the things that um, that I've seen, and maybe you can comment on this, you know, several times, is that quite often, I mean, how do I know that my foundational approach to putting a security uh, system or a program or a department or a set of controls in place um, I, I can look at my company, I can look at my organization, and I can say, you know, this is what I'm doing appears to be sufficient. 
but when it comes right down to it, I'm looking at it through my own my own filter, through my own set of glasses. And what what is out there? And uh, and maybe you could talk about some of the standards that are available to help ensure that when a system is put in place or when a security program is implemented, that that it actually does cover those bases, and that there's not gaps that maybe I'm not even aware of just because of my own personal position or knowledge. Yeah, it's a great question, and and I'm I'm going to keep playing with analogies because I think they work work in this case. I, I want you to imagine bifocals for a second, and and maybe not necessarily the new modern ones with graduations, but you know pretty firm ones. And you you have two perspectives here. One are are the specifics of standards or regulations that because of the business you're in, you are obligated to comply with, and the other might be. Uh, international or generalized frameworks that have been put together over time by seasoned professionals uh, like the ISO standard for security management, ISO 17799 for uh, for guidance on uh, security management systems, the certification standard uh, corollary 27001. Uh, you could look at the COVID standards for uh, for IT, the CASO standards. All of these represent frameworks that you could say, well, if I can demonstrate to the satisfaction of somebody I would be explaining what I do to, that I comply with all these concepts and steps, I have I have a, a sound security management program. You then have to look at the regulatory environment that applies to the business or the service that you're providing. If it's healthcare, you may have to look for things specific in HIPAA or uh, in finance through Graham Leach Bliley and see if there's anything that are on, that's not covered in those frameworks that might specifically be addressed or addressed in a unique way. For example, if you're in California, uh, you have Senate Bill 1386 that's going to prescribe a specific time frame by which you have to disclose uh, a breach in or, or an event in your security uh, system that may have resulted in a disclosure of, of information about individuals. If you take that that list and you could put this in an Excel spreadsheet, it would you know most most tool sets start out that way. Say here's all these things. Now here's the tricky part, and this is where you switch lenses. This is the thing that a lot of consulting companies do not do, and that you look at this, but you look at it each one each step, each regulation, from the context of the risk and and the scope of your own business. Because someone says you have to keep information secure, well, if you're, uh, if you're an individual contributor, if your company is a company of one and you work out of the dedicated uh, third bedroom in your home, that security may be a locked filing cabinet. And that might be appropriate to the risk, excuse me, of disclosure. If you're a $200 billion company that is an enterprise across the country with uh, a vast wide area network and sophisticated IT and and business process functions and automation, you're obviously going to need more than some locked file cabinets. So you need to look at all of these and then kind of think of it from a, a risk management approach. What am I really doing? What's the real scope of my business? What's the real scope of this particular uh, requirement as it applies to my business and its size, and then formulate uh, a countermeasure or a compliance step that is appropriate to both. At the end of the day, there's an intent in each and every one of these statements 
policies, regulations, uh, requirements, and your ability to craft one appropriate to the to the risk and scope of your business determines whether you uh, wind up with a risk assessment that took uh, four days and four thousand dollars, or took forty people four months and uh, four hundred thousand dollars. Whether or not you wind up with a remediation or a gap list that has ten items or ten thousand, and very very often there's a tendency in the consulting industry, and this has been a big uh, complaint of mine for for many years, to basically say, well, the only way to do compliance is the ten thousand step, four hundred thousand dollar way, and uh, even if you're a mom and pop with three employees in one location, that's the only way we can do it. And uh, you're just going to have to, you know, find the means to do that, or you're going to be out of compliance, and uh, you know, organizations are going to come and they're going to harm your business. And now we're back to the whole analogy: of security will hurt you. And I think you know, compliance is never for an average organization size, whether small, medium, or large, is not is not a, a necessarily a simple or easy undertaking. But Simon, I think both you and I know that it doesn't necessarily take a, a team of. Uh, of external consultants to to do a good job of this. No, the the value that's brought by third parties comes back to the comments I made about oversight by third parties earlier. Because they are not in the midst of the forest um, all day long, they will identify the the trees that are not well, the trees that are hanging outside the edge of the forest, the uh, areas where it looks like there may be uh, 10 trees that are sick at once. Than, than the people who are, are in there uh, working and, and living around it all day, every day. And and that's that's part, that, that kind of, uh, I don't know whether you would call it uh, totally abstracted or, or um, you know, parochial or whatever kind of uh, perspective that they have, but it is, it is separated from any of the passion about the business. It is, it is, and the solutions. People do become very attached to the solutions that they have to problems, and sometimes you do run into some some pride of authorship that uh, that gets in the way of perhaps making a better decision or a change for the better that might even be easier to do, may even save money and time, but because it uh, is not what was originally perceived, there's a reluctance to to make the change. That's where third parties add value. When they just come in and uh, and produce these gargantuan projects, or uh, becomes a supplementary staff uh, for ages under the uh, aegis of, you know, providing all the additional oversight necessary to comply with this stuff, uh, my eyebrow goes up and uh, my skepticism rises. So, Simon, you, let's say you are uh, the manager of an IT department or an IT team. What what are the top two or three things um, that you would say to somebody else in that role that they should be thinking about or paying attention to when it comes to IT operations and security and compliance in general? A, a few things come to mind that I think if they do at least these, they are going to be well on their way to compliance with any set of regulations. First and foremost is is um, shoring the perimeter of, of their uh, enterprise. They need to know who's getting in, and they need to know that the people uh, are, that are coming in um, are the ones that should be there and have a reason to be there. Likewise, from the inside, people, the, the access controls to technology and to information must be role-based. Almost every regulation stipulates that people should have access to the information they need and nothing else. 
There's no reason to give them access to information that has, especially if it's personally or uh, or customer or individually identifiable, that, that they do not need to perform the work that they're assigned to do. If they do those things, if they have defined roles, and by the way, those things are uh, have implications tied to them. You can't do role-based secu- you know, access controls and securities without having defined roles, which implies job descriptions, right. which implies thinking about what people do. If they do those things, if they manage access to technology, access to the business, access to data, and they have done some reasonable amount of preserving the uh, the availability and the uh, the uh, you know security of the data through backups and uh, secure storage, they're doing those two or three things. There's a lot that they've just accomplished. They may have some other things that are going to go out, that are going to go on. They may have regulations about distribution of reports, but they're foundationally and from a culture perspective within their company, they are going to lift as as instances or expressions of those foundational principles. Again, we're still talking the very broad strokes of how you're going to plan these things in. Uh, obviously, you need to define those roles to get a picture of your footprint. Of I was really thinking in terms of you know, before I even go after compliance, do I have an idea of what I'm impacting, how big my organization is? I wonder if we shouldn't get into maybe just exploring that what these different uh, compliance rules really mean. HIPAA obviously is healthcare related. HIPAA is health healthcare related, but it, it in fact it is it is more from from a security standpoint. It is more about protecting individual information. It is so much like Graham Leach Bliley that the the crosswalks that get published on the on the internet in spreadsheets all, almost build uh, these these one to one maps between a HIPAA HIPAA compliance regulation statement and one in GLB. And GLB is the the sort of Graham Leach Bliley Act overreaching act for the financial services industry. Right. And then there's uh, Sarbanes Oxley, which I think has huge ramifications for almost every company. Yeah, Sarbanes-Oxley, otherwise known as the Accounting Firm Full Employment Act. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, come on. Uh, you know, this this was, you guys are already doing external audits. Now we want you to come in and we want you to attest to the fact that the internal uh, process reviews and control reviews done by the organization are, in fact, uh, valid and, and well done and, and useful. And it's kind of like I, oh, such overkill. Yeah, the oversight of the oversight. It is such complete overkill against the risk. You know, this was a reaction to to corporations like Enron and and others that that you know did some things at a very senior level. And almost any public corporation, probably with the uh, with the compliance and cooperation of their senior most executives could behave in just a way today. Right. But how many public corporations are out there and how often has this really happened? And as a result of implementing Sarbanes-Oxley, how many corporations have been found to be out of compliance uh, and, and charged with any kind of misconduct, fined or brought uh, to justice, if you will? Uh, I mean, you know, Tens of billions of dollars have been spent on on uh, this oversight, and I'm not sure that isn't going back to a statement I made earlier. 
you know, kind of taking a $500 platinum-plated hammer because there's a thumbtack on the wall and it needs to be straightened. Now, don't hold back, Simon. Tell us how you really feel. Uh, you, you can get me going on this <laughs> one all day. Uh, I was really interested to hear you talking about ISO in the context of the financial industry or, it, you know, software industries in general. I always think of ISO around manufacturing. Well, that's that's right. And if you think of of ISO still as defined policies or practices, uh, documentation or policies that describe the work processes that uh, that ought to go on to enable those those foundational points to be so and to exist in your organization, and then look at at uh, a means of governance of reviewing. That, and making sure that, that in fact, the uh, programs and policies and procedures are being followed, that there are processes in place to remediate where nonconformity exists. We're coming back to that, that, that cyclical model that I, I mentioned earlier, and that's exactly analysis to the plan, do, check, act model that is used for an ISO assessment. ISO has done nothing more in the instance of 17,799 and 27,001, but taken that industrialized-like approach and applied it to security management as if that were just another business process set of systems. Again, that you have rules, that you have practices, that you have remediation and evidence, and that you have a continuous improvement, repair, and revisit process embedded in it. And, and at its core level, ISO is nothing more than that. What makes it really challenging is that the, the set of standards which are prescribed are so comprehensive in terms of all the different aspects of, of information, physical, um, and, and system security that are in place that for a company to do all of those things, they need to be kind of at some critical size point be sophisticated enough to have all of those practices in place, to have documentary evidence of uh, formulated uh, work rules or procedures against all of them and evidence of compliance is often a level of documentation that, that a lot of companies, uh, unless they're fairly mature or aggressive about, about that in their culture, uh, often don't have as completely enough in place as they need to in order to be ISO certified. You know, the, the ISO standard and the 27001 certification and the 17799 standard that you're talking about, I mean, the, sometimes people assume, well, I, I'm not going to adopt that because I, I can't afford to do all of it or it doesn't apply to my whole company or I'm, I'm really not interested in getting certified. But the, you used a term foundational a few minutes ago and I think that's an important one to point out. Maybe you could touch on, you know, what, what you mean by foundational and what the real value is there in applying the international standard. The, the international standard describes a set of guidances and rules that are things that if you were a, a company that involved uh, dealing with with uh, information that needs to be protected, you would be doing these things as a well-managed company anyway. And you would be looking at these and saying, again, you know, um, I need to communicate with my senior executives and I need to understand uh, and make sure that they're aware of what what things are going on in the security management system, what issues we have, what remediation we're taking. Well, if you had financial issues, if you had uh, manufacturing and operational issues, these same things would be discussed with senior executives on a regular basis. This just calls out security 
and says, you ought to be addressing security as an important business process as, as it applies to running the business. So security is never about security for its own sake. It is always in the context of the business that is in operation. You, you do not run around and, and follow guidelines that are not applicable to the industry that you're in unless there's a corollary standard that, that addresses those same concerns for the industry you're in. So it's foundational because it's always starting out at, at what business are you in, what industry and marketplace are you in, what are the important business issues, what are the important security and information uh, you know, protection and compliance and handling issues. And, and if you look at the ISO standard in almost every instance, you will see that, that the practices that they describe are generic enough to apply to them all. They will be flavored in your procedures to be specific to the business and the size and the scope and the risk associated with your specific you know, operation. But they are foundational because they are like saying, well, we ought to have freedom of speech. Okay, well, freedom of speech in a classroom means one thing. Freedom of speech on a national level is another. Freedom of speech in a religious organization is, is something else. They're all freedom of speech, but the specifics are, are surrounding, surrounding the, the tenants or the bylaws of the organization are going to be specifically and uniquely tailored in each of those examples. And the, you know, the concept of security not being a project or an event, but rather a way of doing things is really supported by by this uh, you know, business process standard? All of this is about risk management. At the end of the day, you are looking at your business and saying, if, if information that, that I'm charged as part of my business for keeping safe and secure is, is, you know, is exposed, I have a business risk. These frameworks, frameworks like the ISO standards, HIPAA regulations, GLB, a number of the others, all point out practices that, if followed, put a business in a position of mitigating that risk. And the extent and specific implementation that they follow should be appropriate to the size and scope of the risk. That sounds like the real key point to start off with is getting a picture of what the scope of your risk is. It's, it's vital. It's critical. And in fact, the ISO standard is a risk-based standard. If you were to uh, participate tomorrow in, an, in a uh, third-party review to get you certified for the ISO 27001, it would start by a review of your risk assessment for your business. What are your big risks? Oh, great. There are these four things. What have you done to mitigate those risks? Show me evidence of what policies, procedures, practices, and steps you've taken. Show me evidence of how you govern them to make sure that they're in effect and, in fact, these things are being followed and executed as prescribed. Show me evidence of what you do when you find that practices aren't being followed how, and, and what you do to, to train and retrain people where necessary, and show us how you then go back and remediate and review the effectiveness of remediation to make sure that, in fact, you are protecting that which you set out to protect to begin with. It's really not rocket science, and it's really not hard, but very, very often businesses do not close the loop and and keep the process as a cyclical, continual, and ever improving process. And in fact, you know, I hate to keep you know pounding on on the uh, 
the consulting world, but I think the consulting world has worked very hard to make to make security and governance look like a project because they can bill for those. You know, one of the things that's also interesting uh, to point out about the ISO standard 17799 and then the certification standard, the 27001, there's a, nearly 3,100 organizations that are certified under that standard or its predecessor, the Br- British standard. What people may not realize is that of those 3,100 global organizations, 47 of them are in the United States. Wow. That's it. Only 47. And that's really not 47 companies, because the way the the standard is managed, you can carve out pieces of your business and certify just those pieces. So, for example, companies like Bechtel represent four of those those 47 certifications. Uh, There are a couple of pieces of the Federal Reserve System that that chew up three more. Um, And there are a couple of other companies that also have multiple units of their enterprise certified but not the entire enterprise. And I could see them wanting to break those units down because it's easier to get a smaller piece certified. It's about managing scope and then managing that that cyclical process to the the refinement necessary to achieve the certification. You're right. It is easy. It is easier to chew the uh, submarine sandwich one bite at a time. <laughs> Are we- I don't care for elephant very much, but I really like submarine sandwiches. Submarine sandwiches. <laughs> Are we talking then about a competitive advantage for those 41 entities? Let me ask you a question. Uh, You work hard for your money, and and you're going to go to a bank, and you're going to deposit your pay, and you're going to pay bills, and perhaps make some investments, keep some other things. You have a choice between two banks. Their fee structure is identical. Their services, hours of operation, everything are identical. One of them has an international security certification. The other one promises they'll do a good job protecting your stuff. Where are you going to open your account? Yeah, point well taken. And the same thing would go between two hospitals. Let's assume the doctors practice out of both. One promises that no one will get their hands on uh, on your medical records. The other one has an international standard for security management. Clearly, that's where you're going to go. It is an enormous competitive and strategic advantage for a company that is in a highly regulated or competitive marketplace and has a certification like this. And having a third party do the validation of that and come in and actually perform the actual examination and then issue the certificate um, based on that standard really seems it has a quite a quite a great value. There are very few organizations that can do it. The process is fairly rigorous. And of all the certifications I am aware of, the ISO certification is the only one I know that requires a semi-annual audit review twice a year. And and that, I believe, is unique in the industry. Even the Treasury Department does not go anywhere twice a year. And you know, it's one thing to say every six months, uh, yes, I'm doing what I'll say I'm doing. But to have somebody else uh, every six months come in and say, yes, this organization is, in fact, doing what it needs to be doing is, a, is really a different story. The, the only way that can work for you is if you have made security management and security practices a part of the operating culture of your company, your organization. And I think at the end of the day, uh, the, the best way to express the concept, which I, I believe Greg mentioned earlier, about security being a process, not event, is that it is this continuous, unending process, and that can only be expressed when it is a cultural attribute of, of the organization that you're working in. Yeah, you really have to live it. All right. I think we're just about out of time. Any final words, Simon, before we wrap up? Uh, Nothing else. I would I would like everybody to understand that it is uh, 
it is a valuable and useful thing to embrace security practices that they always need to be done in the in the scope and in the context of the risk that they are trying to mitigate and uh, that it is a part of a regulatory environment that is only going to grow more complex and uh, demanding as time progresses. Can't argue with that. Simon, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate your insight on compliance. Thanks, Simon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And we'll talk to you again on Run As Radio. Radio.